Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not able to be with you today uh, as yesterday I was uh, performing a wedding for my brother-in-law, my wife's youngest brother in Minnesota, and so I'm spending now the the week with my family out of town on vacation, but uh, God's blessings to all of you in your worship today. Uh, Last week, we started a new sermon series for our, uh, our, our summer months called Beginning God's Way, which will be a study of the first 25 chapters of the book of Genesis. And, and, and last week we began right where everything begins. At Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created. We focused last week on the fact that Genesis 1 is intentionally recorded in such a way to demonstrate that God is a God of order, God is a God of structure, God is a God of purpose. That that in all of these things, God, most of all, he wants us to get the order of things correct. And what's the most important order to get correct? That God is first. In the beginning, God created God is first, that God's word is primary, that God's word spoke all things into existence, that God is creator and that we are his creation. And it's incredibly important for us to get this right, right from the very beginning, because if we don't understand that God's word is primary, that he is our creator, that he is first and that we are not, we will struggle to understand the rest of the Bible and what it all means for us even this day. So as we are looking at Genesis 1, God's, order, God's creation is ordered. God's creation from the very beginning is, is perfect. Or as he says repeatedly, it is good, it is good, it is good. Right at the end of each day, it is good, it is good. Uh, in Hebrew, the original language of the book of Genesis, that word good does not simply mean um, like, ooh, that's a really good piece of cake. Uh, it actually means perfect or complete or whole or, or nothing lacking. So when God looks at his creation and says it is good, it's, it's, a, it's good. And on the sixth day, after creating humanity, God looks at his entire creation and he says it is very good, which I think is so cool. Even in the original Hebrew language, the distinction is made between good and very good. And our English translations thankfully pick up on that too. It is good, and now it is very good. That was Genesis 1. Now, what about Genesis 2? You know, if you're reading straight through in your Bible from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, uh, sometimes we read Genesis 2 and we say, I don't, is that another, is it another perspective on creation or another account of, of creation? I don't quite understand what's going on here. Um, if you're looking at it, it's not, um, it's not another perspective on the creation story. Um, it's, it's actually what you could say is a, like a, a complementary portrayal of creation. Um, or in other words, uh, Genesis 1 is sort of like the zoomed out version of creation where, where you get kind of the, the high level view of the whole thing. And then Genesis 2 is the zoomed in version uh, in particular of the sixth day of creation, or even more particularity, uh, the creation of humanity. So Genesis 1 kind of zoomed out, Genesis 2 is zoomed in. And what do we see when God creates humanity? 
Just like the rest of creation, God is intimately involved in the creation of humans. He forms the first man as a potter would form a piece of clay. This image um, of, of pottery and a potter is used actually kind of th throughout the scriptures to demonstrate the relationship between God and humans. In this terminology, though, this, this picture of pottery production, what Genesis is emphasizing is that humans, being the, the clay, are wholly and utterly dependent on the potter to be made. I mean, have you ever seen a lump of clay turn itself into a beautiful piece of pottery? Even if it were set on the potter's wheel and set into motion, if the potter did not touch it, would it ever turn into a pot, even if left alone for a long time? No, it, it would not, right? The piece of clay is dependent on the potter to shape it into what it is. And so this demonstrates that, the, that humanity is wholly and utterly dependent on God. This whole image also, uh, I mean, it, it sets the idea, sets the stage for the idea that humans rebelling against God is as utterly preposterous and as foolish as the idea of a pot rebelling against the potter. Well, it just should not happen. God's very special concern for the very first human, uh, it's, it's indicated in the act of God breathing into the body that he has now formed. If you want to follow along, uh, now we're going to kind of go verse by verse throughout Genesis 2. So we're in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 7 right now, if you want to take a look. But uh, this does not happen to any other, or any other creature that God creates. He does not breathe his life into it except for humans. And when God breathes life into humanity, this is exactly what happens, is life, life comes, life happens. In our gospel lesson today, we actually read kind of a New Testament parallel uh, to this breath of life. After the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into the disciples, he was, he was breathing the life-giving breath into them, into the new creation that is the church. And so the church has received the breath of God living into it as well. As God is bringing about life in Genesis 2, as he's intimately involved in forming this man, God had also planted a garden in his creation. This is verse 8 now. And in this garden, there are two trees. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is an image that shows up now throughout the rest of the scriptures, and the tree of life indicates that the option for eternal life was present for humans even there in the garden, that God, who is the God of life, breathed life into them, and they can eat from that tree of life and receive the life of God. But there's also this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and attached to it is the opposite promise. 
Because God says, if you eat of it, you will not live, but you will die. Now, the age-old question and the thing that people have pondered, and me included, is the question, why did God plant this tree in the first place? Why would God even do that? Is he tempting them? Is he messing with them? What, what is going on? Why would he give Satan an avenue to even uh, enter into the perfect creation? The easy answer to that question of why would God do this, uh, and a very faithful answer at that, is simply, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know the why behind a lot of God's activity in the scriptures or even to this day. And so we don't have to formulate an answer to that question. What is is simply what is, and that's what God did. But a faithful answer, a faithful understanding to this question could also be, without going too far, uh, why did God put that tree there? Is, you know, we know from this creation account that God did not create uh, little robots or little pawns on the chessboard that God just moves around. He created humans right from the very beginning with a rational mind, a rational soul, with emotions and in intelligence to hear God's word, to hear his structure and his order, and to either respond to it or to not respond to it. And Without having the alternative, uh, what would it look like for them to actually respond to it? it do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, they needed to have the option to not respond in order to respond faithfully. This really is what worship is. Uh, this is what love looks like. This is what praise is. When we intentionally choose to respond to God's word over and above our word and our own desires. So as we go from here, you know, we have this garden being planted, the Garden of Eden. And, and you know, oftentimes to this day, people love to ask another question, you know, where was the Garden of Eden? And I love to think about that idea as well. I love geography and maps, and so I love looking at this stuff too. Obviously, we don't know exactly uh, where the Garden of Eden was, um, however, as the author of Genesis gives us uh, some of the uh, classifications and the identities of, of things that he says to locate it uh, are still in existence to this day and have been throughout known history. Uh, in particular, the two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, these are well-known rivers. Uh, the rest of those descriptions are, are unknown. Uh, if you don't know, these rivers put us someplace in the, in the Middle East, um, in the ancient land called Mesopotamia, uh, or later Babylon, uh, Persia, these, these areas. Um, and uh, in today's geography, this is somewhere uh, in, in Iraq or uh, Syria, Turkey, that whole region. Now, we don't know any specific locations, and that's exactly how God wanted it to be. And we'll talk more about that next week as God closed off the garden to Adam and Eve and ultimately to us. Now, as we continue through Genesis chapter 2, um, on the sixth day of creation, when God created animals and he created humanity and he created that man, God parades the animals in front of the man for the man to name them. And as he's parading them along and he names them, it is found that there is no suitable helper 
that is fit for him. The Hebrew there indicates like a, a complementary person or somebody that, that fits him, somebody who's uh, like him but opposite to him. And, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in verse 20, this is the first place that the name Adam appears. Now, not to, not to burst your bubble here, um, however, in the Hebrew language, the name Adam has actually been showing up multiple times already. Uh, and it's actually the same word here. I don't know why our English translations all, all of a sudden give it to him as a name. But uh, so far in Genesis 2, every, every place that the word the man, the man, the man, which if you look back has showed up a lot of times, the man, the man, the man, it's all the word Adam or Adam, okay, Adam. And, and that's taken from the Hebrew word Adamah, which means ground. So when God took the dust from the ground, the ground is Adamah, and God forms Adam out of the Adamah, right? Which is a pretty cool, pretty cool name. And, and having that name Adamah being taken from the ground uh, shows that Adam has a special responsibility, a unique responsibility to care for the ground that he has been taken from. Now, Adam is uh, lacking a helper fit for him. And so, uh, just as in the formation of the man, God is intimately involved in the formation of the woman. A deep sleep falls upon the man, indicating that the man cannot take any credit for the creation of his wife. And in that deep sleep, God removes a rib from the man and he creates the woman. And this woman is referred to as the helper. In the Hebrew language, the word helper uh, does not indicate uh, some sort of inferiority or a lower status. Uh, together, the man and the woman stand as equals and as a unit. They stand before God together. Uh, and it's very clear the word helper does not indicate inferiority as oftentimes that same word is used to talk about God and his relationship to man, God being the helper for the man. I love this image that, that the woman is formed from uh, the rib of the man. Um, as a kid, actually, I don't know, at some point in elementary school, I was, I was totally convinced, and I don't know where I got the idea, I must have misunderstood something, but I totally got the idea that boys had one less rib than uh, women did. And, and I remember counting my ribs, and I think I got to one less rib on one side, and I thought, it's true. See, God, God, God took a rib and now boys have one less. And I would tell lots of kids about this. So I don't know how many kids are walking around uh, thinking that boys have one less rib than women do, but uh, it's not true. And that's a real, that's a real bummer, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> After the woman is created, though, uh, the first thing that Adam says, the first words that he speaks are a poem. Did you know this? There you go, guys. If you've never written your wife a poem, now's the time, right? See, when everything was perfect, this is how man spoke about his wife in poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. <laughs> you know, I told you that that word... Um, Adam meant, means man, and, and it does, but Adam is more kind of a 
a general term for like humankind or, or people or something like that. Um, there's another specific word for, for man, and it's the word ish. And so God creates ish, and here uh, the woman is isha. So she'll be called isha because she was taken out of man, uh, ish. And so those two words are complementary. They go together, ish and isha, ish and isha. We kind of have the same thing in English, man and woman, man and woman, same thing. They fit together. Uh, they are the, the way that God created uh, for that relationship to be in marriage. And therefore, therefore, uh, Genesis 2 ends with these words, Therefore a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman looked at each other, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. It would be nice if the Bible ended here. I mean, this is the last place in the scriptures where everything is as it should be. There's no shame. Perfect relationships, perfect creation, uh, and, and everything is as it should be. And so when you experience the brokenness in this world and you look around at the world and what's wrong with the world, uh, really it comes down to this. Uh, the things that you experience that are not right, that bring stress or conflict, uh, are, are the things that uh, undo God's good order when God's creation is not operating the way that it should be. And so I love the way that this ends. They looked at each other and they felt no shame. I wish we could say the end, right? It would be nice if the Bible ended here. But in actuality, uh, the Bible does kind of end in the same way, in a similar way, in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Let me, let me read these words for you. I'll put them up. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the promise, the, the revelation that's given to John about what the new creation will look like. And what do we see is that God will make all things better, that God will restore this creation, and that all there will be is the tree of life. God being our creator, God will be our foundation. God's word is the beginning and the end. And God, from all of eternity, stepped into our existence in humankind, and he came into the world in order not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came into this world to die for you, to forgive you of your sins to get rid of the shame and the guilt that is associated with your sin. And Jesus rose from the dead to usher in the beginnings of the new creation. And so this is where we live between creation and new creation, having in us some of the old Adam, that sinful nature in which we are born, but also we are given the life of the new Adam, that is Jesus Christ. And his life is given to us. 
And so, on a daily basis, particularly through the waters of baptism, we daily die to sin and rise to new life in Jesus Christ. And so each day, it is like stepping foot into the beginning of the new creation. And so, men and women, husbands and wives, all of you, go into this world and act according to the image of God that you have received through Jesus Christ, that you were created into. Do what it is that he has asked you to do. And when you do, you live in the image of God and emulate the love and grace of Jesus Christ. So go richly, go boldly into this wonderful creation God has given to you, living with eager anticipation for the day of the final new creation, which will come when Jesus returns. Go in his name. Amen.